Welcome to the Venture Fizz Podcast. I'm Keith Klein, the host of our show. In this podcast, I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. And I have to admit, I'm pretty lucky as I get a chance to chat with lots of founders, investors, and operating executives and hear their stories firsthand. There's so many inspirational stories that need to be told and shared. So thank you so much for listening. And do I have a great interview for you today? I spoke with Ellen Rubin. She's the co-founder and CEO of ClearSky Data. Ellen is a serial entrepreneur. She's been a co-founder of three different companies and was an early employee at Natiza that went public and was later acquired by IBM for approximately $1.7 billion. Her current company is backed by A-list investors like General Catalyst, Highland, Polaris, and Akamai. Not only is Ellen a great founder, but she's also a very active member of the Boston tech scene as a board member at the New England Venture Capital Association. In this podcast, we obviously had a lot to talk about. So we cover a lot of ground like the Natiza journey from stealth to IPO, how CloudSwitch, a prior company, was an early pioneer of cloud computing for the enterprise, the background story behind ClearSky Data, plus we surface a lot of important advice. We talk about how to validate your idea in the market, how to land your first early adopter customers, and lots more. Okay, before we get into my interview with Ellen, I needed to take a moment to mention our job board. Did you know that we have over 2,600 positions listed across all job functions? It is the most targeted job board for scouting out those positions in the Boston tech scene that will take your career to the next level. So do not put your career on hold. Visit VentureFizz.com, then click on our job board tab where you can find your next dream opportunity. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Ellen. Ellen, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. All right, so let's just dive right in. I always like to go way back for uh, you know these conversations. So where did you grow up and what did you end up studying at Harvard? So I'm a local girl. Um, I grew up in Brookline and uh, I've spent most of my life in the Boston area with a couple of very uh, long uh, trips away to you know to kind of see the world. Um, and uh, yeah, I went to school locally for both uh, undergrad and, and graduate school. And I was um, not an obvious tech entrepreneur back in college. Uh, I, uh, I studied uh, more, it was a con- kind of a combination of sociology and history that was uh, offered, had some economics thrown in as well. Um, it was really, really exciting, cool stuff. And, uh, you know, mostly just uh, learned how to, how to ask a lot of questions and try to see what was going on in terms of some of the social groups that were, you know, going on around me. Um, so I think it was good, uh, good training for anything I would want to do from there. Now, even like I, I think we've talked in the past and uh, your father, he was CEO of an early stage biotech company, correct? That's right. Oh, it's funny that you uh, that you found that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's in the. It must be in the DNA somewhere. I have a. I have a number of people in my family background who started their own businesses, and and my dad for sure uh, is uh, you know kind of a, a biotech startup guy. So around the the dinner table, you probably were you know used to having those conversations of you know the ups and downs of running a a company. Yeah, I don't think I realized at the time that I was like soaking it in because it just didn't seem like something I would be doing. You know, I don't know. I'm not I'm not sure what I thought I was going to do, but maybe I don't know, maybe a lawyer or something like that. <laughs> and uh, after college, I kind of took a sharp left turn and ended up in tech. So it's uh, it's 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 been that way ever since. Um, but yeah, it's true. I even um, b- on both sides of the family, both grandparents had businesses that they built and ran themselves. Got it. OK. And well, coming straight out of Harvard, what did you do right after undergrad? 
Uh, so I was a Booz Allen consultant and, uh, you know, nice, uh, good job right out of school. And again, you know, just uh, really was a great opportunity to see how businesses worked and a lot of different uh, companies. And what ended up happening for me, because it was uh, it kind of uh, it, this was all happening in the 90s, was you could see all of these traditional uh, large uh, corporate American businesses that were trying to figure out how to deal with technology. So at first it was more kind of in the CD-ROM world, and then it became uh, obviously the internet shortly after that. And just watching how that completely upended everything that was happening, and you know, massive disruption and whole new business units that either you know got got created or things that got destroyed. It was a really interesting uh, front row view of that, and I got to work with people who were you know either threatened by that uh, or they became huge early adopters of technology. And I think that was something I got to really benefit from later on in life. And then you went on to be a co-founder of you know kind of the first time starting a company with some others called, was it Mana? Yeah, yeah. I went to business school after Booz Allen and um, okay. I, my husband and I kind of decided we'd live uh, internationally for a while and um, he was in tech and I ended up um, starting to work uh, with some Israeli uh, entrepreneurs in Tel Aviv and we were doing one business which was actually in the infotainment world and then a few of us actually spun out and started a company called Mana and I brought that back to Boston and we got it funded with uh, Israeli and American investors and uh, it was believe it or not, in the early days of e-commerce, and we were building software to do real-time recommendation uh, for sites, you know, if you like this, then you might also like that. It's, it's almost hard to imagine, but at the time we were using some AI technology. Um, and it's, I, I just look at the waves of technology like, and now AI is all the way back. And there was a long period where it couldn't have been less alive and interesting. And, you know, so I've seen that happen a few times. And uh, I did, we did build, build that company. We raised a bunch of money. Um, it was during the dot-com days and it was, uh, you know, pretty classic dot-com story. And so were they competing against um, ATG and NetGenesis back in the we, day? We were in that whole area. There were a yeah. whole bunch of companies that, you know, in the end turned out not really to be standalone companies, but more features of e-commerce. And I think we, being in Tel Aviv and being further away from the market, were, you know, we were in an interesting space with some interesting technology, but I don't think we quite exactly understood where the market was going and that it was there was a broader platform that you had to plug yourself into. Yeah, and you look at today, you still see companies getting funded that are trying to solve that personalization. Totally. Like, I, I mean, I shop online, right? So do right. you? it's not really very good. So <laughs> I'm kind of laughing here. I don't want to say how many years later, but a lot. Yeah, no, it's, it's and like you said, AI is now, you know, kind of the AI buzzword. Is back. AI, AI is back, but early adopter. Okay, so then from there, you are at well, Wheelhouse for a little bit, right? Right. Um, yeah. I, then, um, the best thing for me that happened was, you know, we lived in Israel for a few years and then I kind of wanted to come back to Boston and, you know, we were going to settle down here and stuff. And I got much more tightly integrated into the tech community. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was at Wheelhouse pretty briefly, but the Wheelhouse experience actually got me connected into some of the local um, entrepreneurs and venture capital firms. And that was actually how I got to Natiza. So one of the investors um, actually put me into Natiza uh, from, from Wheelhouse. And there was this great opportunity to meet Jit Saxena and Foster Hinshaw, who were the founders at Natiza. And this this was back in like 2001, right? So, you know, Natiza was still, let's just say, kind of an idea and some early technology that was being developed. 
So, so you were introduced to them through uh, Charles River Ventures or CRV. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah, exactly. You okay. know, in fact, the, the, we'll talk later, I'm sure, but the venture world has changed quite dramatically since those days. But, you know, back at the time, there were a number of really, really major firms that were kind of leading the charge in terms of a lot of the technology being developed here. And it was all happening up 128 and in Waltham and all that stuff. And obviously, CRV was a, a major player and, you know, Matrix and some of the other guys. So you have this company that has a great founding team, great technology, right? But yet hadn't quite figured out the market, right? And you came in to run marketing. Was that the initial role that yeah, yeah. I was um, I was one of the first um, uh, non-technical hires. So there mm. were just a couple of us at that point who were not actually building product. And um, I was, you know, I was coming out of this very, very entrepreneurial experience where I had been myself the founder and working really closely, you know, with building, you know, the initial ideas for the product, you know, from, from a, a drawing on a whiteboard or whatever. And what I realized was that I had kind of fallen into it <clears throat> and I hadn't yet been in a situation where there was really great mentoring for me or working with people who had themselves done it really su successfully in the past. So a lot of it was me just trying things and they weren't working and, you know, iterating and all that, which by the way, is not a bad thing to do. And it, it you know, I, I highly recommend some of that, but there was kind of a point in which it was like, I need to go attach myself to a founding team and a set of people who have actually scaled and run businesses so that I can see what that looks like. And it just, some of it is you just feel it in your, gut. And some of it is you can tell because of the people's backgrounds and, and you know, the investors. But I kind of was interviewing around and I, I talked to Jed and I thought, OK, this is a guy who's going to teach me something. Um, and so even though I wasn't myself the founder, I just decided that wasn't the priority for the next several years. And I ended up spending close to seven years uh, working there. And, and really, like it was almost like going to business school for real. That's how it felt. And so what was the kind of the end state of the product and the market that you guys ultimately built to an IPO, then an acquisition by IBM, right? Yeah, I left before the IBM acquisition, but I was there from, you know, stealth mode, pre-product all the way through to um, about a year after the IPO. And when I left, we were about 130 million in revenue. We were profitable. Uh, we had global customers. We had, you know, the product was just, it was just such a great product. It still is actually, you know, it's here we are so many years later and the product is still in the market and people still really love it. And, you know, it had a, a company that can survive more than a 10 year wave of technology. That's a good product and company. And that happened even within IBM, which, you know, sometimes those acquisitions don't don't always work out so well. That was a very successful, I think, story for the company. I was through the first, you know, I was through, you know, part A of the whole Natiza story and um, just getting to see, you know, getting to experience the IPO, but also getting to see how much the customers really loved and valued what what the product could do for them in their business was exciting. And it was all about, how to use data more effectively and how to manage large amounts of data at scale. And, you know, these are themes in my life, I guess, that, that, yeah. I, that I really and, like. And still themes and problems that people are addressing today. Yeah, I don't think that will ever go away as a set of problems. So you come in as an early team member and you go on this great journey where you climb up the hill. And I've seen a picture of the Natiza you know, team on, on the podium you oh, know, yeah. when you go public. Right. So what, what, what's that like? I always get fascinated by like, you know, finally hit that, you know, it's not the end of the road. It's just another, you know, kind of benchmark in the road, but right. like, what's that day? Like, was it just like, Oh, we finally did it. And you're just having just so much joy of that accomplishment. Yeah. I don't want to underestimate how awesome that is. Cause yeah. that moment you're like, you just feel like you're floating. Right. Yeah. And I have to say what was really great was that we did it um, at the, um, 
we were at the New York Stock Exchange. And so that has a much more like the richness of American capitalism, you know, yeah. the building, the, you know, mm -hmm. everything about it is so iconic. And it was just, it was just really exciting. And I think everybody just, you know, we were like floating five feet off the ground that whole, that whole time. But what you have to realize, and until you go through it for the first time, you don't know that, is that all the lead up to the IPO and then everything that happens thereafter is the true reality of the IPO. That, you know, that couple of hours that you have the euphoria and the parties and all that kind of thing, that's great. And you should enjoy every second of it. But a lot of what ends up happening is you're now accountable to the market. All of the, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley stuff you got to do, all of the, you know, auditing and measuring and stuff like that. It changes the nature of the business. You are not a startup anymore for sure. And you've done a lot of work before that to prepare. But what happens afterwards is that, the expectations on the company and the way in which things get run to scale and also functionally and stuff like that, it's just different, you know? And I think there are people who love different stages of companies. So for me, after I had kind of stayed for about the year and we were, you know, off to the races and stuff, I'm like, you know, but what I really am is a founder. Right. Now it's time for me to go back and do that. And I think I maybe, I maybe learned at least a couple of things I can take with me. And that, that's a great segue. So then that's actually what you did. You moved on from Natiza, spent some time thinking about your idea and started cloud switch. Yeah, I am. Um, I had, the, I think the theme for me that has been true right from the beginning is I've always spent a lot of time with enterprise IT customers who have physical infrastructure and data centers. And that's a very particular market. So that's a market I know really, really well. And certainly at Natiza, I got to see that in spades. You know, we had these big million dollar systems that got installed into the data centers. And what was so great about it was that it was an appliance that so was really compact compared to what they would have had to do with, you know, big expensive, you know, Oracle, EMC, you know, types of systems. But, um, you know, both before and after, you know, certainly uh, here at ClearSky and, and, and also a cloud switch, the problems that exist with managing that infrastructure and how awful it is and how painful and how much cost and waste and inefficiency and just sheer unpleasantness, your power goes out and you can't get more power and, you know, like the most basic fundamental problems. So having lived that and seen that, I just thought those are issues I really deep, deeply understand. And when I started reading in 2007 about what was happening with the cloud, it just was so clear that this was like a transformational moment. And, you know, you don't get so many of those as an entrepreneur, right? These massive waves of technology shift. So, you know, you get smaller ones, but this was a massive one. And I was very fortunate that both, um, you know, JIT as Natiza founder and some of the investors uh, over at Matrix and other people were like willing to sit with me and kind of help me think through where I wanted to focus. And actually, I got introduced to my co-founder uh, for Cloud Switch, John Considine. And he was sitting there and he had an idea that was this idea about enterprise data centers and the public cloud. And how are these two worlds going to meet? Right. And I'm, I'm telling you, honestly, there was a picture on a whiteboard that was like enterprise data center, public cloud. What do we do in the middle? And, and this there's, is 10 there's years ago. Blue. This is 10 years ago. This is 2008 that we got that thing off the ground. What a vision. So, yeah. what a vision. That's amazing. The vision never changed. I think the reality of the market just is the way it is, which is just like with virtualization. These are 10-year sweeps of technology, right, where people are figuring out what to do with it, understanding the benefits for business, making it less about the technology and more about the, the application, the, you know, what's the value to a business user. And we're so far down that path now. But let me assure you, in 2008, most conversations with CIOs used to go, hey, we have this company that builds software to help you connect to the public cloud. Oh, that's good. What's the public cloud? 
Oh, okay. Um, Amazon? Oh, you mean Amazon the bookseller? No, no. We mean Amazon the technology powerhouse. <laughs> imagine how ridiculous that sounded, right? But it, it, it was all what was happening. So and I would sure. think trust, right? Like, I'm not going to have my data with someone else. Are you insane? Oh my God. Like, right. yeah. yeah, there was extreme paranoia and craziness that is now, I would say, completely gone or, you know, gone to the point where it doesn't matter about security and putting data outside the network and all this kind of stuff. And guess what? Surprise, the cloud providers do a lot better than enterprise IT does at managing that stuff because the bar was set like all the way up to infinity right from the beginning. And so they actually solved some of those problems at scale, right? Large infrastructure at scale, it's a really hard problem. So they, these guys have it nailed. So this was, you know, hybrid cloud, right? Like, can we say you were the pioneer that you coined that term? <laughs> <laughs> right. well, no, we can't say that. But what we can say is that we were using the ideas of hybrid cloud before that term was being used. And right. we were describing to people this, this concept of that on and off prem is going to matter. And that even though the major shift is to the cloud, guess what? A lot of things are staying close to the, the customer's, you know, data centers, to their, you know, colos, wherever it is because some things actually have to live at the edge. And there's a lot of, there's been a huge debate with the pendulum kind of swinging back and forth between, oh, everything's in the cloud. No, you know, first it was nothing's in the cloud, then everything's in the cloud. Now the answer is, guess what? It's it's both. Mm -hmm. And you're gonna, and by the way, hybrid cloud also means more than one cloud provider, which back in the day, it was only ever Amazon. Now there are truly at least three or four very viable cloud providers that people are really using for enterprise. Right. That's also a great uh, change since the, the cloud switch days. Got it. Okay. And then obviously you went down the path again and ultimately led to an acquisition by Verizon, right? Yeah, we were about three years in. And what we were realizing is that there was a tremendous amount of evangelizing and education of the market and getting the enterprise customers comfortable and a lot of piloting and stuff like that. But it wasn't yet a true business pain and need that the customers would have for at least a few more years. And we kind of hit that fork in the road that, you know, that happens with startups, which is, do we keep raising money and keep going and get the market will get there because we're, we know the trend is in our direction. At the same time, we had multiple companies that were very interested in us as a strategic acquisition because the people who were trying to provide cloud services were the ones who actually really needed what we had and trying to figure out how to make it stickier and easier for customers, you know, quick on ramp to the cloud was kind of the, you know, the, the elevator pitch. So we actually had a couple of people who were, you know, engaged with us. And then Verizon was at the time trying to build, you know, a huge Amazon competitor cloud. I think they realized over a few years that that's actually incredibly hard to do. And uh, in the end, I think, you know, decided to back away completely from that. But for a while, there was a very strong drive and vision to leverage the fact that they're already in the customer's data centers and they have all of the network connectivity and they understand how to run services. So, you know, it might just as well have been the cloud providers with the telcos, but in the end, I think um, a lot of it is the ability to do technology development and which companies are really good at that. And so anyway, so it was a very interesting learning experience. I have to say it was a great experience uh, for us to, to go through that. We became part of their Terramark business unit and I got to see what the world looks like when you're in one of the largest corporations in the world. So I went from tiny little 30 person cloud switch to, you know, Verizon behemoth. Wow. Yeah. I'm sure that was a just night and day comparison. Yeah. Learned, learned, learned many things and, you know, met a lot of very cool people. I think it's sometimes it's good to step outside and see what the world looks like when you're in a more traditional corporate America world, you know, and not everybody's trying to build the next greatest cool thing, but just to actually run something very, very large. Uh, so post acquisition, obviously you wrapped up your time and commitments there and, Looks like you spent some time off 
but then jump back in and uh, like, how did you meet Laz to start Clear Sky Data? So yeah, I did. I did actually take some time and really try to just, you know, decompress a little bit more think, you know, what is it that would be fun to do? And, you know, also there's the decision about how many times do you want to do this as an entrepreneur, you know, and it, guess what? Turns out again, I like to do it. So we're, we're going to, we're probably going to do it some more, but yeah. um, I, uh, I was very, very intrigued from what I learned at CloudSwitch about networking issues in this hybrid world and how to run things in a distributed way across multiple locations. The cloud is wherever the cloud is in these very large you know, places in the world. Customers are everywhere and compute could be anywhere. So it was sort of an in initial kind of idea or thought I had about networking and latency. These were some problems I was interested in. And so I was looking for a new technical co-founder who was interested in some of those same problems. And um, Paula Long, who was the founder of Equalogic, uh, introduced me to Laz. He worked for her for 10 years and was at Dell for you know post-acquisition of Equalogic and had kind of reached the point where he was like, okay, it's time for me to go do something entrepreneurial. So she hooked us up in 2013, and we spent a whole bunch of time sitting in a room with a whiteboard um, and just trying to sort of say, what, what, what is the problem we want to solve? And because he both is a storage guy, but also has a networking background, you know, back from the days of 3Com and, you know, other networking companies, um, that was really important to some of the founding ideas that, that went on here for ClearSky. So, yeah, so we actually, we got the company started and, uh, you know, we're funded and up and running in 14. Got it. Okay. Well, let's talk about... Clear Sky, what, is your, what does your company do? Mm -hmm. uh, we have a fully managed service for medium and large enterprise, and we provide this, it's an on-demand pay-as-you-go model for um, primary storage that's very, very high performance and low latency that also includes offsite backup and disaster recovery. And what we do, because we're managing the whole life cycle, all the things you would get from an EMC or a NetApp together with backup and uh, DR types of software from Veeam and Zerto, we've kind of bundled that all in in a, a, a managed service model. So we just provided it to the customer. They never touch any infrastructure. And what's very cool about what we do, which now hopefully will resonate from all this background stuff we just were talking about, is the data can be the, the data that's in the ClearSky service can be accessed from wherever the compute wants to be. So it can be in multiple physical sites, you know, virtualized data centers, um, and in uh, multiple public clouds. And you know, our philosophy is we just want to make the data available, so it's always performant and secure, and you know, highly available and all that. But the but the compute is wherever the customer needs it to be, and we have this concept of the edge is wherever the edge is going to live. And what we're finding is that you know customers want to use the cloud for DR, or they want to use it for long-term archive, or they want to have primary storage still sitting in the data center, but they also want to be able to do collaboration in the cloud for some of their developer teams. And there are many models that enterprises are are using it for. And what you don't want to do is you know back to early early you know days of my career have large stacks of infrastructure across all of these places with copies of the data that, that you then have to back up and protect and move around and get it across a network and stuff. So that's just all within the ClearSky uh, service. And we've done kind of, it's we, we like to describe ourselves as we're like Akamai for storage. So the, the data is available at the edge. And um, we just think it's the right model for what people are trying to do uh, in, in this hybrid uh, cloud world. And Akamai is actually a strategic investor, right? 
That's right. We um, we did a couple of rounds of funding and they were part of our Series B. And, uh, you know, I th- let, let's just say that when we described what we did, they were like, we get it. So that was that was a good conversation. And uh, a lot of the you know enterprises that are adopting the cloud are living in this world that kind of spans across, you know, unlike cloud switch days where they weren't. Now they really, truly live across on and off prem. And I think what they're starting to realize is. Cloud's good for some things, not good for other things. One cloud is better for some things than other things. And how to use that in a way that doesn't create just an enormous mess of, of you know, data and infrastructure. You know, the data is always the hardest thing to do, and you need to be very careful about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's talk about, you know, raising capital. Like you've raised multiple rounds of venture capital throughout your career. Um, what, what advice would you give to, to founders that are raising capital? Well, it's funny, you know, every time you do it, it's always a, diff- a slightly different story. And, um, you know, each stage of the company has a different set of, you know, needs and constraints and stuff like that. But, you know, the most important thing, I think, is to find um, investors who are who really are excited about the problem space that you are focused on, right, where you're, you know, and it can't just be well, everybody loves AI right now, right? But like, what particularly are you doing and you as the founding team that you bring to the table that's compelling and exciting and that these investors are really going to stick with you through the ups and downs of the whole story? You know, it's never a clear shot. You know, even Natiza is the greatest success story in the world, but, you know, a lot happened along the way. Um, and um, I think for me, having seen, you know, I've seen things work out well. I've seen things fail. I've seen a lot of ups and downs. And what you really want are that the investors who get involved have bought into a lot of this so that they're there for you and can be helpful, not just in terms of, you know, money, but in terms of having insight. And this is the stage you're at. This is the inflection point you're at. And this is the right thing for this company to do at a given moment. And, you know, that's it's uh, you know, that's pretty critical. I think for a lot of early entrepreneurs, sometimes the issue is just getting access to capital at all. Right. You know, later on, it gets a little easier. But <clears throat> I think early on, it's mostly about making sure that you spend your time in the community and networking and really, really making sure that you have an opportunity to make yourself and your ideas known is a, is a full-time job in some cases. And you can't, you know, you don't, you, you can't do it, you know, on social media, you got to get out there and be physically present. So, um, you know, it, it happens in Boston, maybe not as much as it does in, in, in the Valley or in New York, but there's just so many opportunities to just be constantly out there and, you know, engaging. And it's amazing to me every time I do these types of, you know, whatever it is, you know, evening events or, you know, coffee meetings or whatever it is, you do often either learn something or someone connects you to somebody else. And it really turns out to be valuable. Might even be like a year later that it turns out to be valuable. Like when I go to look for a technical co-founder, that stuff pays off in spades and, you know, certainly for raising money. And I was going to ask you that question too, of like, you've had some great success finding co-founders. like. Was it just through your network and getting introductions to great people? Yeah, it, but you know the the reality is is that you you could get lucky, but to me there's also a process. So when I was uh, before Cloud Switch and then again in, before Clear Sky, you know breakfast, lunches, dinners, meeting up for drinks, asking everybody who I knew to introduce me to the next two or three people. Like there there truly is a process to that because you know, the odds of matching are not so high, right? You have to have both, you know, same goals and, you know, financial potential opportunities to take time off without getting paid. You have to, um, you have to be passionate about the same issues. You have to get along, you know, imagine wanting to work with this person for 10 years, you know, like none of these things are an immediate, 
easy yes. And so I, my feeling is that it is it's something that it makes sense to work on. I, I know people who like went to college together and then they just are co-founders together the rest of their lives. You know, for me, that isn't the way it went. And so it's been more of a using the network and really spending time with people to get to know them. Yeah, and that relationship piece is so important as far as getting along. I mean, you think about how much time you spend with your co-founder. Like you said, it could be a 10-year you know, and you're spending hours and hours with that person every day, plus your investors too. That's the other piece of, you know, I just hear from other entrepreneurs giving advice, you know, make sure you get along with your investors. It's not just money because they're going to be along with you for the ride too. And make sure you see eye to eye. Absolutely. Yeah. Now you've been successful of having this, you know, vision of building great products to solve critical needs for enterprise IT. How do you validate the vision? Like how do you, you know, before you actually put your stake in the ground that we're going to do this, how do you validate your idea? Well, I think I think having come from a marketing background is actually a helpful thing here because um, really spending your time out talking to customers and also partners that could potentially be, you know, distribution or, you know, strategic alliance type partners and stuff. Doing all of that work is, you know, it's certainly it's it's a an iterative and lean process that you have to run. But there's again, there's no. Um, there's no taking a shortcut in terms of just saying, oh, I read some stuff in, you know, market data that's available. You have to get your hands dirty. And as I've gone on in life, I've had more people that I know that I can run the idea by and that it's the same group of buyers. So I have a chance to go to them over a couple of different companies. But early on, honestly, I would be like stalker person. You know, I'd be like LinkedIn. Hi, I'm Ellen. I'm a local entrepreneur. Will you talk to me? Um, I'll buy you coffee if you'll just listen to me describe what I'm trying to build. And certainly people can introduce you, which they do, which is very, very helpful. But some of it's just on you, you know, like you got to get out there and be thoughtful in the process of how, you know, how many um, how many points of validation do you want to get? And how do you make sure that you've gone beyond the that's interesting to no, I actually really have a problem that this helps me solve. And it's funny, you don't always know. It's really hard to tell sometimes, like even at Natiza, where we did truly have a strong value prop early market research that we were doing, there were plenty of people who were like, I wouldn't use an appliance. I don't like an appliance. So there's there's some like, if it's already so well understood, you're probably not unique. So there has to be something disruptive about what you're doing. And you have to try to listen to what I'm building will really truly solve a problem, even if the customer is not quite ready to adopt this this new technology because I want to be a little bit ahead of the market. It's it's a very fine balance, right? You gotta You gotta keep trying and keep testing. Then how do you land your first customers if that's, you know, the early adopter market? How do you find those? Um, there are people out there who just really love technology and love to engage with entrepreneurs and you need to find them. And there it's not like you buy a list and you go down the list. It's that it's a personality thing. So I always use the term psychographic, right? It's not a demographic, it's a psychographic. You meet these people, they are the ones who show up. They were the early people who went to reinvent, right? And the people who were at VMware before VMware was cool and you know, like all these kinds of, you know, for me in the infrastructure world. Right. So you find them, they're wandering around, they're looking to understand where the industry is going, and they are in some ways shaping the, the way the industry is going because they're going to get behind people like me and help us get started. And God bless those people. Like my whole life has been based on the fact that they exist. Um, and you, you do, you know, you kind of, um, some of it is serendipity, but some of it is if you have something that's compelling and strong, those people will at least try it with you. And they'll invest, if nothing more than time, just to help you refine the idea and get it tighter and smarter. 
And then often, you know, we had that at ClearSky where we had, you know, a whole handful of those people who then converted and became paying customers. So they went through alpha and beta with us and they just sort of stuck with us. And, um, you know, I, I don't think I don't think there's a way to just go, oh, there's that guy. He's the guy who's going to do it. You have to, again, sort of be out there in the industry and meeting people. And you can tell also some of those people are the people who get quoted in the press talking about new technologies. Sometimes they have a career where they'll come into a place that's a more traditional place and they're a change agent. So you're looking for that, that they're you know, that they that they love that that gets them excited. They don't want to do the same thing over and over again. One of the critical pieces of building a successful company is the team. What, like, what do you think about when you're just starting to hire the initial foundation team that, you know, you just raise your first round of capital and it's like, okay, we got to start focus on recruiting and team building. Like, how, how do you go about that process? Well, I mean, Laz and I were able to pull from a lot of people who we'd worked with in the past, you know, mm-hmm. so that's a particular thing where you sort of have an idea and you know some of the people in your network that would be a great fit and you've kind of lined them up and you've said, hey, if this thing gets funded, are you ready to jump? And, you know, so we did a lot of that. We actually like first day that the money was in the bank, we, we already had like the core engineering team was ready to go. Last time a cloud switch, that was not true, right? We were really recruiting from scratch. And there, I think a lot of it was trying to find the people who, if they aren't founders, they're people who love that there's nothing and I want to create something. And there's, there's, there, there are people who get really, really motivated by that and hopefully very well rewarded if the company does well, you know, they, they, they get, you know, a, a good chunk of the equity and they, you know, they're really, really critical people in the early stages. And whether or not they grow and they want to continue into the scale stage, you know, you, you figure that out together as the company grows. But it has to be that aspect of that they just love the chaos of it. And they kind of like get energized by the, oh, we have this unsolvable problem. We're going to go figure out how to solve it together. And so you're really testing for that in the, you know, the DNA and the interviewing that you do. And some of it is also just um, testing for, you know, good karma and good energy between the first few people. Because, you know, I've definitely had experiences where some of the early team didn't get on with each other. And I'm a little more sensitive to that now. Like disruption and arguments are really good, but there's sort of a point where it becomes actually breaking of glass and too, too much. And so trying to find that balance. You don't want everybody who just agrees with each other. That's for sure not good. Um, but they have to be able to laugh after they've had a fight. Right. Yeah. Humor. Humor is very important. So look for those people that love, you know, like you said, the chaos and you, you know, you're a multi-time founder and, you know, you touched upon this a little bit earlier, but why do you keep doing this? I'm one of those people. I just love it, you know, and uh, sometimes I wonder if maybe I'm a little crazy, but I do feel that um, the the experience of something that new that didn't exist before, something that these early customers get really excited about, that's that's what I'm passionate about. I really enjoy it. And I like working with the people like that who enjoy this process along with me. So, you know, I, I not that I didn't enjoy the scaling and getting to see what it's like when you get to be, you know, big again, even, you know, huge with the, you know, Verizon thing. But what really motivates me is this sense of like, wow, this is something that was really hard to do before. And we've made it simple and we've created a great experience. And hey, my customers got promoted and were, you know, shining in their jobs as a result. Like all of that is very motivating. Well, in addition to running a, a company, you're also very active in the Boston tech community. You're one of the board members of the New England Venture Capital Association. So how do you manage your time? Like, how are you able to do so many different things? It gets it gets harder as the company gets bigger, right? You know, but I do. So I feel um, particularly around um, supporting um, younger entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs, 
trying to make Boston as vibrant as possible. I got a huge stake in all those things. So, you know, I, I, I care, I give back. Um, I'm involved with um, a local venture firm called Pillar, um, Jamie Goldstein's uh, firm, whatever. So I trying to really encourage the next generation of what's going on. I got really hot and bothered about the whole non-compete issue back in the day and trying to eliminate that. And, you know, there are just certain things that I feel like, like you, you got to show up. So I try to do it selectively because, you, you know, you can't go to everything, but, you know, picking a few of these topics that I care about very much and being there. Sometimes it's also like, especially for the women in tech things, like just appearing is part of the story. Like, hey, you know, a bunch of us came out tonight to talk on a panel and we're here, you know, to, to be available to you. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, are there any, you know, you touched upon, you love to you know be a mentor. Um, what companies in the Boston area are, you know, kind of like, the up and comers that you look at and you're like, wow, what they're doing is pretty cool. Well, I've been, I have to confess lately this past year, I've been a little heads down in terms of being a pretty, uh, you know, clear sky focused, but mm -hmm. um, there are, you know, there are some companies that I've been involved in either just mentoring the entrepreneurs or um, some of the founding teams and stuff. And I guess what I would say is um, what I, what I really, really like uh, right now are companies that are um, taking the next step around some of the areas of IoT um, and things that are happening uh, around what does that mean and, and, and how are we going to turn that into a reality as a, you know, an opportunity in the market. So that's an area that I'm very focused on. Um, you know, there are certainly uh, a number of companies that are, you know, in my space that are doing really well and that I'm excited about in terms of just, you know, kind of data management and infrastructure and stuff like that. But I, what I, what I really like right now um, is watching friends of mine who are doing great. So I, I'm sure, you know, Andy Palmer. Um, so, you know, he's, he's a friend, a yeah. mentor, you know, his company is doing terrific. John McElhaney from uh, uh, Cloud Switch Days. Uh, with Onshape, you know, see, seeing these companies thrive and grow is making me very happy. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many great companies in the Boston tech scene these days. They're just great entrepreneurs. Uh, and, you know, you touch upon Pillar, right? So the the next wave of investors, right, that, that are funding this exciting time in Boston. So lots going on. Well, Ellen, thanks so much for, you know, taking the time to share your words of wisdom, your story, and what you've been up to. Um, at the end, I always like to turn the mic back. So if there's anything that you want to promote out there, certainly feel free. Thank you. No, I think this is great. And uh, it's really good to catch up with you. Awesome. Well, thanks again for your time. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.